Hi, Your Family Dog listeners. Just a quick note before we start this episode. While it doesn't go into graphic detail, this episode does touch on issues of domestic abuse and intimate partner violence. So if you're listening with small children around or you're sensitive to those topics, you might want to exercise a bit of caution before going on. That's all and enjoy the episode. Welcome to Your Family Dog, a podcast dedicated to helping families love living with dogs. Welcome back to the Your Family Dog podcast. I'm Tina Spring, and I'm joined today, of course, by the smart and pretty Julie Fudge-Smith. And joining us today is my good friend, Carol Ann Adams. We've raised many a dog together. And Carol Ann has a long history working in all sorts of categories where dogs sometimes come into play. Um, and pets in general. And so I thought it would be a really good idea to have Carol Ann on to talk about that and how those of us who um, are out in the world can maybe make all of that easier uh, for pets and their people. So um, Carol Ann, welcome to the podcast. We're so glad you're here. Thank you. I'm thrilled to join y'all. Yes, Carolyn, we're very excited to have you here, as is our, uh, her usual, um, if whoever does the introduction, the other one gets to ask the first question. So I guess the the first question that I have is, how did you get started in working in, uh, especially with uh, domestic violence and homelessness and, and dogs? And can you address some of the issues around pet ownership and some of the problems with dealing with getting people out of situations such as homelessness or domestic violence and yet keeping their family intact, which may include for them very particularly their pet, either a cat or a dog. Absolutely. Um, In school, I studied child and family development, and I was working for the Department of Human Resources as my first job out of college. And that particular job put me in contact with folks working at domestic violence organizations. And when I went to a conference to learn more about domestic violence services, um, I was really taken by the absolute passion of the people who worked those jobs, the knowledge, the professionalism, and I really wanted to be a part of what they were doing. Um, Certainly, you know, we all have experienced, whether we know it or not, friends, family, or us personally, intimate partner violence at some point. We all know someone. And so um, the feminist perspective also attracted me. And so I joined with that, that, and that led me to a career in social work. And So um, I have worked at Athens Community Council on Aging, and I have worked um, in other positions where I'm encountering people who are homeless, regardless of their age, um, working with folks with substance use disorders. So I've kind of been around in a lot of different areas, and I've seen a lot of different things that are extremely helpful. Um, Me being a dog lover and a lifelong dog owner, except when my parents wouldn't let me, um, is what led me to being particularly in tune to the concerns of people who have pets um, early on in, in working with folks who are dealing with domestic violence. I learned that one of the biggest barriers to leaving is pets. If you have an 80-pound German Shepherd and that is who who maybe protected you at times, who, who maybe was there to console you, who's your pet? Part of your family and your best friend. A shelter can't bring in an 80-pound German Shepherd. Usually your mom and your sister, if they are able to bring you in, can't bring in an 80-pound German Shepherd. Or, or you know, if you're moving into an apartment, 
with a friend. Dogs may not be allowed. Um, and so that was a critical problem when working with people who were victims of domestic violence. Um, I'm not sure if you guys are aware, there's an organization in Athens called, or in Georgia called Ahimsa House. Are you guys familiar? No? Okay. Ahimsa's House was founded, I think, in, okay, I was, it was founded in 2007 or six, sometime back then, by a person who had been a victim of family violence and their path to intimate partner violence. And initially, it started out as a shelter, confidentially located shelter for pets when the pet owners were seeking safety and the it has now morphed into being a group of foster homes throughout the state and they will take in people's pets and they will house exotic pets they will house dogs um but primarily it started with the dogs and now they've expanded quite a bit so there are some supports in place. Our local domestic violence shelter project safe works closely with the University of Georgia Veterinary School and so they also there have some things in place for support. Um, and certainly the issues that come up with people who are aging, particularly people who are homebound and receive Meals on Wheels, the wonderful people at the Council on Aging that does Meals on Wheels here have a pet food pantry and pet food will be delivered with the meals um, so that people, partly so that people aren't giving their delivered meals to their pets so they can eat. Um, but just making sure both people in the home can eat. Um, so it's it's always been a pretty important part. Um, I've worked with homeless people whose pets kept them from getting into recovery from substance use disorder. Um, I've worked with people who had pets that they really couldn't care for because they weren't even able to care for themselves anymore. But you're no more going to give up your pet then you're going to give up your child. And so a lot of times people held on, even if they knew they couldn't do the appropriate care for their, their pets. So that's a jumping off point. Did I answer your question? You did. You did. Um, one of the things I was uh, thinking about when you were talking about um, Meals on Wheels, one of the things that the OSU Veterinary School does here is they do um, they pair veterinary students and veter veterinarians with Meals on Wheels. And they will go and uh, visit at the same time. And they're the ones who discovered and let Meals and Wheels know that these people were feeding their meals to their animals. And so then I think it was Blue Foods partnered with Meals and Wheels and with the U.S., with the with the veterinary uh, hospital to uh, to do all that, to provide food and veterinary care. So um, it's a really important thing because I, I I just know how much my dogs mean to me and the idea of having to give them up and not knowing where they're going to go, not knowing the kind of care that they're going to get. And I would imagine that in domestic abuse, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is that oftentimes domestic abuse can start with abuse of the pet and then it escalates to the abuse of the person, or it's a way in which the abuser keeps control over the person that they are abusing because, you know, the, the threat of, of hurting their animal. So um, I was also going to say the, uh, the American Kennel Club has uh, a program where they support shelters that um, for victims of, of abuse where they can take their pets with them. So th I think that's slowly changing. What kind of advice would you have to trainers, perhaps, who are going in homes and seeing some of this stuff? What kind of things would you think that we should be aware of as dog trainers or just as, you know, sort of friends of, of uh, people? The basics are, are kind of the same regardless of what's going on, whether it's um, people 
people on the edge of homelessness because of financial issues and other family stressors, or it's people who are dealing with violent, intimate partner violence in the home. Um, certainly threats to pets are a very big means of control. I've worked with lots of women who left the moment their pet was injured. That was the, that was the deciding factor to get out. Um, and I think that the, the main advice that I would have is to listen to people and to offer non-judgmental support. Um, people who are, are financially insecure, people who are in violent relationships often believe that it's not um, a societal problem or the problem of the abuser. It's that they've done something wrong to land them here. And um, there are a lot of people for whom there's a lot of shame and a lot of blame involved with being in those situations and making sure that you're not coming at it from a perspective of why why haven't you done this? Well, why wouldn't you do this? Why is just not a helpful question in those situations? Because my guess is most people have thought of all of the what things that you're saying, well, why don't you just um, do this or do that? And so I, I think that acting with empathy and and paying attention to the fact that that you don't have an, you don't have the full picture. Usually if you're just going into a home, not just, but you're going into a home to do training, you might see things like maybe the pet and the pet owner becomes visibly uncomfortable when the partner who's abusive comes through the house, or maybe they speak in a manner that you would not want to be spoken to. And raising it up, I don't think the appropriate, appropriate approach would be to say, are you safe? in that instance, but I think it's something that you add to your your back of the brain knowledge about this person, that there may be safety concerns, that there there may be things like that. And maybe in another instance, ask them, you know, how are things at home? Do you feel safe at home? Everything good there still? So I can tell you as a trainer, it's one of the things that made me stop going into people's homes was, you know, over a long career, I've had three incidents where it was pretty obvious that domestic violence was occurring. I was caught in the middle of a situation where I ended up getting involved with law enforcement and getting people out of homes. Um, and I was happy from the perspective of, I was happy to help somebody, right? Um, but it was also very uncomfortable and I was definitely out of my depth and was glad I was friends with Carol Ann and could call. Because I was like, what do I do? I think that for me, I was so surprised in each of the incidents where something occurred that it just came out of nowhere. And I, there was a little bit of like, wait, what's going on? Like, what just changed? Something just changed. At one of the cases, I had the, the, um, the partner who was inciting, the that was abusive, uh, had actually trained the dog to injure the, the other partner and the kids. Um, and so I was getting called to come in and, and unteach that aggression, which was interesting, but of course didn't get the full picture until I was there and finding out what was going on. And actually the six-year-old is who told me what was happening, right? My mom was mortified that I was brought into the loop, right? And so, um, I think, yes, it's, I think it can happen in any walk of life. You know, you can, you can be somebody in book club and you go to drop off a book and all of a sudden you're like, whoa, what is up? Um, So do you have any advice for the person who, you know, is just going along their day and minding their business and all of a sudden they find themselves in that what the heck is going on moment about how 
to best love that person? Number one, non judgmental. Respecting their decision making. If someone is making a decision not to do what you think is best for them right then, you just don't know what's best for them. Um, and, you know, when I've, wor- I've worked domestic violence hotlines and, and moms know what their daughters need to be doing or their sons need to be doing, right? Moms know. And moms, you're, you really are powerless to do anything other than offer unconditional support and access. And not being the person that says, you know what, if you don't finally leave, I'm just done. I can't deal with the drama. And and that's where a lot of people get. And there's, if you can be the person who doesn't walk out because they're done and, and you can still be a non-judgmental form of support for this person, then you may be one of the last ones standing because it's real hard for mamas and sisters and brothers and daddies to do that. It just is. Um, so, yeah, 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 it is. And I think sometimes um, if you're not, you know, you just don't know what to do in that kind of situation. As Tina said, it can really catch you off guard. Um, I guess my question is, is if you witness um, abuse towards an animal or towards, um, you know, a, a person, are there hotlines or is there something? I mean, is this a ch- is this a time for you to call law enforcement? Do you call abusive hotline, what would you think would be the best course of action if you actually witness an abusive event? If you witness an abusive event, I think first course of action is ensure your own safety, right? You have to make sure that you're safe. And if you pick up your phone and say, I'm calling 911, you may cease being safe. Um, (laughs) Because if you're calling 911, the person who's going to get in trouble knows they're about to get in trouble. So first ensure your own safety. And then, um, you know, a lot of times, Calling the police is the appropriate thing if there is the, you know, I guess in the ideal situation of walking up on that abusive incident happens, person perpetrating the abuse runs off. Then you ask the victim, hey, do you want me to call the police? Because sometimes calling the police causes a lot more trouble for people than it does good. Um, Typically, domestic violence crimes are misdemeanors. Um, In order to be a felony in Georgia, you have to have permanent disfigurement or broken bones. And in a lot of jurisdictions, a broken orbital bone isn't good enough because it heals up fine. Um, And so most domestic violence incidents are going to be misdemeanors and they're going to be bondable. They do have to see a judge before they get a bond. But most of the time, the perpetrator will be out in 24 hours or so. 24 to 72 hours. So um, it's sort of like stirring up a hornet's nest sometimes. Um, what yeah, that, that, um, I think this is information that uh, one I was, I was not quite, I was not aware of. Um, I live in Ohio. I don't, I imagine that the laws are probably similar, but I don't know that for sure. Um, but the other thing I was thinking is, is that yes, sometimes it can be even worse, but if, if the person's taken away for 24, 72 hours, and you can offer, and so then the the person who was the or the animal that was the victim of the abuse, if the perpetrators at least removed from the scene for a while, what can you do next other than just support? Can you help connect them to a abuse hotline? I mean, is that the point where you step in and say, "Hey, let's see what we can do to keep you safe once he because he's going to get out." I'm assuming absolutely it's, mostly it's a male. I don't mean to be. <laughs> sexist about this, but most abuse happens male on female is my understanding. Um, not that it doesn't happen the other way. 
But, and I will um, say that typically I, I say, you will hear me say she and her and female throughout. I do acknowledge that there are male victims of domestic or intimate partner violence. There are victims of intimate partner violence in same sex relationships. There's and and just like Tina was saying, it doesn't matter if it's the doctor or the accountant or the janitorial worker. It's happening in all of these families. I think that we, um, I'm, I'm going on a little bit of a tangent here, but often we see it more in low income families because they are more watched and their homes are closer together. There's less privacy when you don't have money. Um, and so I think that it's brought to the attention of the public and the law enforcement a lot more frequently. And that's the ones that we hear about. So there's that. But I think that, yes, offering resources is critical. Every state has a statewide hotline that you can call. Um, and I'm going to speak to how it works in Georgia. There's a 1-800 number in Georgia for domestic violence hotline. When you call that line, you get routed to the shelter in your area. Um, with the advent of cell phones, sometimes that routing is not as correct as it once was. Um, but um, I said that like cell phones are new, but you know what I'm saying? So yes, I do. Because my cell phone thinks I live in Tennessee. Right. I don't know why it keeps, you know, or, or today I was looking for a FedEx box and it had me go to Plano, Texas. I'm like, I'm not driving 15 hours for a FedEx box. So yes. they yes. <laughs> So what you're saying is verify that it's the closest shelter, right? Yes. Yes. And the shelter advocates typically who are answering the phone will say, hey, where are you calling from? And you tell them the county and they say, hey, I'm going to put you in touch with someone in your area and they get you to the right person. But um, I know in Georgia, there is a certified domestic violence shelter that serves every single county in the state. Many of them serve multiple counties. The one in our area serves four counties. Um, but there is a shelter not just a shelter, though. What most uh, victims of domestic violence, intimate partner violence don't understand is that it's not just going into a shelter. There are far more services provided on an outreach basis, and that can be as minimal as safety planning. If you plan to stay, how are you going to protect yourself when the next incident happens? How can you keep your pets safe? How can you keep yourself near exits if you need to be near exits when these ha things happen? Do you need to teach your pet a recall word that they will listen to over anything in the whole wide world to get them out the door with you? Um, and so there are certain things. So certainly referring to the state domestic violence shelter, they will typically know the resources for the pet programs. And so even if an individual shelter or organization doesn't have a pet program, they will be able to direct victims to how to, to arrange for safety for their pets if they're ready to leave. Um, and even for people who are ready to leave a violent relationship, there's a misunderstanding that they just automatically go to a shelter. My first question is, okay, do you think this person is coming after you? And if the answer is no, you know, I don't think that they would, it's, it's never escalated to violence against me. Would you be safe at your mom's house? Would you be safe at a friend's house? Um, and sometimes the answer is, I have a cousin 10 states away who would help happily let me live there with my dog. I just need to get there. And then the shelters typically try to figure out how to get you and your dog to where you're going to be safe. So um, certainly I, I, I would absolutely recommend in family violence situations that you immediately to the state hotline and even the national hotline will get you to the right place. Yeah. And then those folks will know the resources. So if someone wants to volunteer, for example, to be a foster home for someone who is experiencing domestic violence and they need a temporary place for the dog, how would um, 
how would the person get in touch with the what they call the hotline and say, hey, I'm I'm not a victim. I'm trying to get in touch with because I know security becomes a big issue. The programs for pets are not run by the shelters. Typically, they may be. And every domestic violence shelter is going to have a business line that will be published that you can just call their business line and ask that question. In Georgia, most of the shelters, um, when I was working in that field, were relying on Ahimsa House. It's spelled A-H-I-M-S-A. And Ahimsa House's website can tell you how to help them out and volunteer with them. Um, and so certainly calling the the non-emergency or the non-hotline number for a shelter um, and asking, hey, I'd like to help out victims with pets. Do you have a program or do you have a program that y'all rely on and how do I get in touch? I was thinking when you were talking about the, the the recall, the secret recall word, when I was working in Virginia, we had a young woman who had a couple of dogs and she was in an abusive relationship and she, she was planning, making, she was coming up with a, with a plan to get out. But one of the things she did was her dogs would shut down whenever they heard their names. So she gave them names that only she knew. So when she was training and working with them, they were responsive to her because they responded to the names that were not associated with the abuser. And so I think that um, people sometimes think, well, my, you know, my dog just shuts down. Well, there's ways through that too. And getting the help um, from a trainer who has, uh, can give you some, some guidance there in your attempt, you know, in your plan to, to get out. Um, I think sometimes we, um, we just think that somebody should should leave right away, that this is an awful situation. And it's and it is, and maybe they should. But it also is I think it's really good that you mentioned that you have to work with where the person is right now and work with helping them if if you're gonna help them to develop a plan that's actually going to work for them and it's not just a temporary solution to a problem because what they need are are perhaps more long-term solutions than just Yes, you need temporary safety, but we also need a long-term solution. So I think, is that what you're saying, that, that the shelters can actually help not only with the short-term safety issues, but can help you with the long-term planning? Mm-hmm. They help with the long-term planning, and um, they also can help with, if you're not ready to leave yet, safety planning, which is basically looking at when do these, you know, identifying things that when you're in it, you may not be identifying it. Are there particular triggers? that set off an abusive incident? Are there different things? Do you know, you know, people would say, I always knew that it was coming. And sometimes I would instigate because I would rather get beat on Friday than on Monday when I have to take the kids back to school. And so there are times when people know their abusers really well. The other reason that it's often not the right time to leave is because it's really, really dangerous to leave. Um, my statistics are a bit out of date, but they were current 10 years ago. My out of date statistic is that 75% of domestic violence homicides happen within six months of leaving the relationship and separating in some form or fashion. That could be within six months of a divorce. That could be within six months of moving out. That could be within six months of filing for a temporary restraining order. So what What's critical to understand is that you don't just leave, right? Um, when it's when it is the type of domestic violence where your partner is saying things to you like, "If I can't have you, no one can," then they they generally mean it. And the way that they keep other people from having you is by killing you. So 
Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, having figuring this out a safe way so that you don't become one of those statistics is is critically important. Um, Absolutely. And trusting that the person in that situation is going to know far better than anyone outside of that situation how to handle it. Right. They've stayed alive so, until now. That's right. Um, <laughs> when, when you were talking about, I was thinking when you're talking about the all walks of life, um, I couldn't help but think about um, the uh, the book um, Big Little Lies. When in that particular book, it's a very wealthy family within which she is. It, it's a very abusive relationship between the husband and the wife, and there are times when she does instigate it. And so I thought Leanne Moriarty does a really good job. She investigates domestic violence in many of her books. And that one was sort of the, the, the top of the line that people just don't see somebody who is that wealthy is having those kinds of problems. Um, they just have a better way of masking it or hiding it, I think. But even there, you know, she, even with all the money, felt like, you know, I can't leave, at least not at this point. And that is just is I think it's very hard for those of us who are not in that kind of situation to wrap our heads around. So the reminder that we need to be compassionate because we don't know the whole thing. It's kind of like when I told my kids, they'd be on Facebook or they'd see, you know, somebody do something and say, You are just seeing a Kodak moment here. You're seeing a snapshot of this person's life. You don't know the whole situation. Even that's and that's about something that, you know, that they may have thought, oh my gosh, this person has everything perfectly. You don't know that. And certainly the same situation arises with somebody who is in a situation that that is difficult or abusive, you don't know the whole situation and you can't possibly know what is right for that person. Absolutely. And, you know, when you're speaking to people who are of means, wealthy people, uh, if you're trying to leave a wealthy partner, they have a lot more access to resources like private investigators. They can afford the best tracking devices to put on your vehicle. All of the ways that they're going to stalk and find you again, they have far more access to than someone without any money. Right. The other thing I was going to ask you too is you talked about restraining orders. Are those uh, are those effective? Sometimes. Um, sometimes. Sometimes. I think that a lot of times, I, yeah, sometimes. Um, and that's another thing. You know, a lot of times people are like, you need to get a restraining order. And the partners or the victims like, no, 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 that's a bad idea. Some people will react to law enforcement involvement by saying, oh my gosh, I'm so scared. I'm going to follow these rules now because I'm a rule follower and they're going to stay away, right? Some people are going to react like you brought someone into my business. Now there's hell to pay and they don't care if they get arrested for it. Um, or they're not even thinking that far out for consequences. Um, as in, this is just a piece of paper. There's not a guard outside your door. This is a piece of paper. And, and it really is at the end of the day, it is a piece of paper. And again, I'm going to keep going back to, I, I know that my husband would 10,000% be freaked out and obey a piece of paper, <laughs> right? <laughs> I've dated some guys in yeah. the way we passed that would not have cared about a piece of paper. And so that's another thing where we have to respect the decisions of the people who are living those situations because um, they can be very effective for people who are going to follow. But if people aren't going to follow them, they're not. One of the biggest benefits that I see is that um, if you have a partner who does not have firearms and they are subject to a temporary restraining order, they can't get a gun. And guns are the primary way that people who are victims of domestic violence 
once are killed. I I, so that makes perfect sense, and you can't get a gun right. if there's a restraining order on you. But I didn't, I didn't know that. So yeah, um, I, I wanted to switch veins maybe a little bit and talk about sure. homelessness, mm-hmm. um, because um, that's another situation that um, I mean, I think about you know San Francisco where homelessness has sort of become absolutely epidemic, um. What can, um, not that I think, I don't don't know how many homeless people listen to your family dog. I don't think that there's a whole lot, but who knows? Um, But you may know somebody who is homeless. What can somebody do to help somebody who's who's homeless, who is a pet owner? What What kind of resources do they need and that we might, as a society, be able to provide for them? A house. (laughs) <laughs> right. Um, I was right. <laughs> um, I agree. That would be great if we could do all that. But I was thinking perhaps a more immediate solution to uh, you know a problem with um with 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 pets. How can we compassionately help these people and their pets? Uh, At least you know, we temporarily, if not on a more permanent basis. And in the temporary, I know that I I worked with someone one time who frequently held a sign asking for help and frequently had their dog with them while doing that. And people did not give them money. People, they were near a grocery store also. People dropped off bags of food with this person regularly. Um, And that might be a compassionate way to respond in the immediate moment. Um, Most of us, except maybe Tina, aren't driving around with bags of dog food in our car probably. But um, but so I would say Tina is driving around. Tina, are you driving around with bags of dog food in your car? No, I don't generally do that. I probably, I probably should, but I don't. Okay. Um, I just figured you're so you're all over the place with animals and stuff, but I guess you feed them at home, like the rest of us. Yeah, I mean, I bring my dog's meal with us when we come to work at the shop. So dog trainers who are busy rarely actually get to train their own dogs. So when I do that, I bring their food and I practice all the things I tell people to practice with their dogs, with my dogs. So yeah, I sometimes have food with me, but most of the time it's things like string cheese. Sure. Sure. So for practical answers, I would get in touch with the organizations that are serving the homeless, um, you know, in the Athens area, Advantage Behavioral Health Services and the Sparrow's Nest both have day centers where they're working with people and they know the folks who are living outdoors and they know who has pets and um, they generally would be a good place to say, hey, can we help you start a pet? food pantry. I mean, I think that it would be really cool if um, every food pantry had a pet food pantry with it, right? Because even for people who aren't unhoused, you know, I'm able to feed premium dog food. Not everybody can even afford the dog food. So dogs are getting leftovers. So if you're in need of a food pantry, your pets are likely in need of one too. And so if I could get all of my hopes and wishes on a national scale, every food pantry would have a dog food pantry and a cat food pantry right there with it. Um, but I think that looking at your local organizations and and getting in touch with them, finding out who provides services to the homeless and saying, this is a particular interest of mine. Can I help with this? Um, I have talked talk to veterinarians who have expressed interest in getting into helping homeless folks with just routine care for their pets. And I haven't seen anything get off the ground yet, but it would be really, um, really cool if some of the folks who are involved in things like you 
are mentioning about wheels on meals on wheels would also jump into like how do we serve the the unhoused population and make sure that their pets are getting basic care. Yeah. yeah. When you said that, I was thinking about um, I have a, a good friend who runs a behavior department at OSU in the veterinary hospital. And you can, if you have a good experience, you can, uh, they were contacted me at the end of the year, you can give a donation in the name of that vet to a particular aspect of the veterinary hospital, one of which is to provide free health care, veterinary care for animals of people who are of, of low income. And so, so, I mean, I think that, I don't know what the University of Georgia does at their veterinary hospital, but that would be another thing because they may also have a program where they're actually getting vets out into the, into neighborhoods. One of the things I did at OSU, I I attended a seminar and the um, director or the dean of the law of the veterinary hospital school um, was saying one of the things that he really wanted to do is he realized through Meals on Wheels is that there were certain populations and neighborhoods that were not being serviced that because they just there weren't people that knew that neighborhood. And so what he wanted to do was to diversify the population of vet students um, to get people who would serve these lesser served areas. And because the application to vet schools is so high, in one year, he was able to make a 50% change in the diversification and didn't lower a single credential to get people into the school. And one of the things that he turned and looked to was he looked to to veterans who, you know, had worked um, with animals. And so he upped the number of, of men because that's a lo- that's actually a, a lower number of people going to vet school. He upped the number of veterans and a variety of other people to, in order to provide people who would be willing to go into some of these areas that need more service. So I think that I think some people are, are quite aware of it. I haven't followed up and, and seen how the project is going, but um, I know that OSU is very concerned about providing services to those who cannot get it other ways. So something to that take a look wonderful. at. Yeah. And, and we, we definitely, I think that looking in and checking in with UGA about what they're doing would be a, a great idea. Um, when I was working in the domestic violence field, we were certainly in contact and they were more than willing to help them. And so my guess is that they would probably be willing if they're not already doing something. Well, and yeah. your local veterinarian, I mean, even you don't have to be near a vet school to be able to support good works in your community, right? So talking to your local vet who maybe you use and you love and saying, can I donate to a fund to help with people who are struggling to pay vet bills? Um, our local humane society has a food pantry for for pets. So when last I looked, no one even needed to prove, you know, how little they made or whatever. They could just say like, hey, I need help feeding my animals because it keeps animals out of the shelter, right? If someone has a sudden change that they can't afford to feed them the dog or the cat, it's much easier and better to support that animal in the home they're in and to really have a rallying cry in the community for how to help this individual family. Um, So I think like just networking with your local humane society network, and if they don't have a food bowl program, offer to help do one, like call an organization that has a food bowl program and say, how did you start it? So we talked about um, homelessness. We've talked about DV. 
Uh, I'd like to also talk about elder care and seniors and ways that um, our listeners can uh, either get services if they need them or help families that are aging and maybe are struggling to take care of their pets or transition with their pets, like from one kind of living to another. The resources contacting local senior centers. Um, they there should be there is a senior center for every county in the United States. I think there was an act way back in the sixties, I believe that or sixties or seventies that got that started. So there are resources for seniors in every community, and I can't imagine at this stage that they haven't all faced this at some point. Um, I imagine that there are places where you will get the answer that we don't have anything for that right now, which would be a wonderful opportunity to say, hey, can we start a pet pantry for you? Um, And so certainly um, getting in touch with an area agency on aging, which serves multiple counties, is always a good idea. And then local senior centers um, always know who's doing what in your area. It seems to me that for um, elderly uh, people as well, one of the things that they also probably can't do is get their dogs out for physical exercise as much as they would like. So it could be that they have the means to care for them. Um, You know, they can afford the food and, you know, the vet care, but they can't either get to the vet or they can't get their dogs out for a walk. So I was thinking that, you know, this would be another thing if you, um, some of our families who are listening, if you have a Boy Scout or a Girl Scout troop, that would be something that they could set up as a project would be to walk dogs for elderly people. So it, it's not just how, where can I throw money? You can also throw time and you can get your kids some volunteer hours if they need it. So, but I think that a lot of this would well could be done through a community center. Um, the other thing you might want to do is is check at your um, your local church um, or parish that they probably know that in the in the office who the elderly people are, the homebound people who are you know like for example at, at our church we have uh, Eucharistic ministers that take the Eucharist to homebound patients so that they can have the Eucharist in their home. Those might be a great candidate for, you know, a, a dog walking service or let's check and make sure that they're on Meals on Wheels. So it doesn't necessarily have to be even through through a, a through a vet or through the veterinary hospital. There's lots of different ways if you want to get engaged. And I know that like um, at both of my the churches that I've attended in this area, um, they there were areas to donate food for both pets and for people. So. Um, there are private services as well. Well, I want to thank you for coming and sharing your expertise with all of us and letting us all know what kind of services are, are typically out there in communities. And also so that if we, if anybody listening needs services, they can find them. Uh, and also to know how to bless and, and share the load in our community with families that may be in need and and need some extra support. I think that's really important. And honestly, I know a lot of people who, so I, Dr. Becker talked about um, that Forever Dog was partially written because she knew that if, that people will change to create life that's better for their pet when they might not make those same decisions just for themselves. And so, um, I don't doubt that in all of these uh, situations, I, I have a lot of elderly clients that really the only interaction they have every day is with their dog. 
right, with their pet. So losing access to that pet would be devastating, right? Um, and I've had a couple that they've gone in for surgery and the pet came and stayed with me and then returned home when they could manage things again um, that I've just done, you know, privately. But I think it's important to know that those resources are there. And if they aren't, to help your community build those resources so that someone isn't having the choice between surgery and losing their pet. Right. I, I, the good point, Tina. Um, Carolyn, I wanted to ask you, is there anything that we didn't cover that you want, would like our listeners to know about any of the topics we've discussed? No, I think everything has been really informative today. I think that, you know, when just an overall theme that when approaching people who are in any of the situations we've discussed, elderly and elderly and firm, family violence, um, housing status issues, that empathy goes a long way if, if you're dealing with a one-on-one situation. And there are already great groups in every one of those areas doing the work and and adding and adding ideas to their work they're going to jump on board. And I think that it's a wonderful idea if you want to reach out and help people who are already working with those populations. Thank Thank you so so much. much. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) We were thrilled to have you. And then thank you also too, for being very willing to be so uh, quick and signing up to come and see us. Cause we know we kind of sprang it on you last week. So we were really pleased that you decided to come and see us this week. So thank well, you again. And Carol Ann, I just want to say as someone who's known you a long time and known you in this community and a community that's important to me, I know the way that it's important to you. Um, thank you for the rich blessing that you bring to the world of um, always being someone who puts a marble in the, in the jar, right? Even when I don't know. You and I have talked about it. Sometimes we like are grouchy putting our marble in the jar, but we're still putting it in there um, because this can be difficult work. So thank you for doing the difficult work and just helping the rest of us network. Thank you. It's been great talking with y'all. Thank you so much. And uh, we'll see you next time on Your Family Dog. Thanks for listening to Your Family Dog. Got questions? Interesting ideas? Visit www.yourfamilydogpodcast.com to share your thoughts.